Hey guys, Michael Cohen here, and welcome back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you very much for joining me on today's show, and as always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you happen to be listening on any Apple devices, whether that's an iPhone, an iPad, or a MacBook, we encourage you to go into the podcast app or the iTunes store, wherever you're listening, and leave us a star rating, leave us a comment, let us know what you think. The better the rating for the show, the easier it is to gain some exposure, and then it makes my job a little bit simpler when I try and find some unique guests and interesting guests for you guys to enjoy on the program. Today's guest is none other than quarterback Sage Rosenfels. Retired NFL quarterback, spent a dozen years in the league, came into the league as a fourth-round pick by the Washington Redskins in 2001. He was at the Combine and part of the same draft class as quarterbacks like Michael Vick and Drew Brees. Then he bounced around a few times throughout his career, as is the case for a journeyman backup quarterback, spent one season with the Redskins before going to the Miami Dolphins for four years, then he was with the Houston Texans for three years, the Minnesota Vikings for one year during their epic run to the NFC title game against the New Orleans Saints with Brett Favre, he spent parts of two seasons with the New York Giants, another year with the Miami Dolphins in 2011, and then finished his career with parts of two more seasons from 2011 to 2011. 2012 with the Minnesota Vikings. So a career that spanned 12 years, played for a half dozen teams, and along the way had some amazing teammates and coaches, which means amazing stories. He played with the likes of Junior Seau, Zach Thomas, Chris Carter, Ricky Williams, Andre Johnson, Brett Favre, and was coached by guys like Nick Saban and Steve Spurrier. So you can imagine the stories come fast and furious with Sage Rosenfels, who at some point, I'm sure, as he talks about in this podcast, will write a book. And that will be the type of thing that I'm really interested in reading. Because for those of you who might not follow the NFL too closely from a media perspective, Backup quarterbacks, guys who have been in the league for a really long time, or coaches, coordinators who have been in the league a really long time, they're the ones that have all the stories. The head coaches and the starting quarterbacks can't really tell those stories because they have to you know, make sure that they're prim and proper and all those types of things. It's the backup guys, the coordinators, the assistants that save all these stories in their memories and have all the great ones to share. So I think you guys will really enjoy today's show. It was uh, the most fun I've had recording an episode so far, and as you can probably see from the length of this podcast, we had a blast and just kept going and going and going. But before we jump into today's show, I have to tell you about our sponsor. And just like last week, it's the website drinkvirtually.com. That's drinkvirtually.com. If you're like me and you miss going out with your family and friends in this time when everybody is staying at home and practicing social distancing, then the best way to get over that is to play games at drinkvirtually.com. So many of us are hanging out with our family members and friends on Zoom and FaceTime, Skype, all those different video chatting apps. And Drink Virtually just makes it that much more fun because it's free. There's no commitment. You don't even need a username. You just log on to drinkvirtually.com. And there's all these fun games that some of us would be playing with our friends anyway, like Ride the Bus, Kings, Screw the Dealer, Higher or Lower. There's a racing game. And my personal favorite, Wombat. It came out two weeks ago. It's the most popular game on the site. It has all these crazy one-on-one challenges and fun interactive games between you and various members of your particular party on that night. It's an absolute blast. We've been laughing our heads off. So I encourage you to try that. And again, it's totally free. No sign up. You just go to drinkvirtually.com, enter the names of all your buddies or family members that you're with, and have a great time 
time, and the new feature just added over the weekend is all kinds of music playlists divided by category with hours and hours and hours of music so everybody on your chat can listen to the same song, play the same game, and have a great time when we can't actually be in the same room. So go to drinkvirtually.com and please drink responsibly. Don't forget to tip your bartender. Well, Sage, thank you very much for joining me. I know this is a time where everybody is a a little bit hectic and a little bit frantic with all that's going on, but uh, glad to hear everything is going well with you and and your family. And so, uh, you know, just generally speaking, what's it like to kind of see the the NFL kind of try and carry on with everything, you know, while while all of the uh, all the rest of the country is is dealing with, you know, COVID-19 and the fallout from the coronavirus? Well, you know, I think that nobody knows it's going to happen in the fall. Uh, nobody knows if we're going to have uh, football. No one knows if we're going to be able to say, yeah, 80,000 people. We, we feel good about putting in a very small area, uh, being a big stadium. Um, we don't know. There are all these unknowns out there. And I think trying to predict the future uh, is impossible. Um, but what we do know right now is, you know, it's the NFL offseason. And the NFL offseason really is just, there's not uh, uh, actual playing going on. Uh, it's just business. It's really just various forms of, uh, of business transactions, whether it's the draft or free agency and those types of things. And so I think what the NFL is trying to do is sort of go about their business, just like somebody who works for an insurance company is maybe whether, even if they're working from home, trying to still do their job and, 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 and keep uh, you know business per usual. Right. Um, I don't, there's not going to be a summer program for the off season. And so my guess is the reason why Goodell uh, and maybe some teams really want to have this draft. Um, uh, otherwise I think it's going to be months. If they're going to delay this thing, it's not going to be a week or a couple of weeks. I mean, I, I believe over the next you know two months or so uh, at the minimum, it's going to be the height of this, this whole thing around the country. So I, I think the way they look at it is if we can get this draft done, um, and we can get these players on quote unquote teams, even though they're in there, going to be living in their own apartments and houses or wherever they live. Um, we can at least at that point sort of integrate them into at least the, you know, meetings online with the quarterbacks coach. They'll probably find a way to watch film, but at least they can spend a lot of time learning about you know the offense and the defense because you're just right. not going to get any of that time and people don't realize you know for for all players but for rookies for even these free agents that just signed a new teams there is a process of learning the game of football learning an offense all those things that are mental uh that are huge uh, and, and the, the physical aspect oh and of course you're just like your workout staying in shape running lifting which you can do on your own uh, of course, you can't practice. You can't be together in groups, but you can make yourself smarter. Uh, it, it, all of us can, uh, you know, from your house, from your apartment. And I think what they want to do is they'd like to get these players on these teams, get these rosters set, and then they can begin that process of at least trying to uh, work these these rookies into the NFL. Um, is it the right move? Is it the wrong move? I think I'm not going to get be in that position to sure. be like the police on what other people should and should not do. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, there's people trying to profit in any way possible off of, you know, buying masks in, illegally and then selling them. I mean, 
you know, they're not profiteering, I don't think, off of their vibe. So I, I think they're just doing their best to try to keep things as consistent as possible, to try to uh, 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 stay sort of on schedule because we don't know the future. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen down the road. So I think they're just trying to do sort of what we do know and that they can do this draft uh, without having to be um, in, in, you know, one room or in, you know, uh, a Madison Square Garden or, or it doesn't have to be uh, in one of these uh, you know, places. They can do it this way because at the end of the day, you're just, you know, it's just like a fantasy football draft. You don't have to be together yeah. when you do that with all your buddies. Right. It, it is possible. It's very possible. It's really not even all that complicated. Uh, to, to, to have the draft. So I think they're, they're trying to uh, get that done so these players, again, can, can move forward on their new teams and, and try to you know, meet with these coaches and learn in and, and and this environment that we're in. So if, they, if and when we do have football, that uh, these guys have a chance. Because if there's, you know, we put off the draft until June um, or something like that, that is, you know, two uh, you know, plus months, three months or whatever, of these players being behind and it is a big jump from the NFL game to the college game or even just from one football team to another if, if you if you moved in free agency or the offseason the, the one area that I've seen discussed on Twitter that I kind of do buy into in terms of it being difficult to to conduct the draft is not necessarily from the mechanics of making the picks and all those kinds of things but you know from from my years covering the Packers they would fly in and I'm sure every team does this they fly in the whole scouting and personnel department like a, a month before the draft um, and they've got all these meetings to set the board and to go over guys and how the Packers used to do it is, you know, they would go through player by player, every single player, you know, with a draftable grade and they would go around the room and they would argue and they would, you know, bicker about where he should be ranked, who likes him, who doesn't, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm trying to picture how these teams are doing that over, you know, FaceTime or Zoom or whatever. And then I think about the night of the draft and, you know, well, what if the, what if the GM wants to talk to his West Coast area scout, but his West Coast area scout's having technical problems? or the audio's cutting in and out. I don't know. I just think from that standpoint with how how meticulous these guys are and how much the draft means dollars and cents wise in addition to, you know, just what it means X's and O's wise on a field, I could see front office guys getting pretty irritated by this. Um, sure. Well, I, I think they need to grow up and need to grow up there <laughs> and go, you know what, we're, we're picking players. It's not going to be perfect. How can we do this the best way we can? Everyone's adjusting in this new environment. Right. Right. I mean, you know, they're, they're not going in and risking their life as a nurse or a doctor without an N95 mask. Exactly. Right? So, yes, we're all put out by this thing. Everybody is. My kids are getting homeschooled right now, or I should say I'm not homeschooling them, but they're, you know, taking their classes online through Zoom or these various other applications, Google, whatever it might be, and, uh, and having, you know, learning uh, and, and those types of things. Uh, you know, I think everybody's adjusting. People are having birthday parties on these websites and apps uh, to have a whole bunch of people sort of together in a sense. So we're seeing it all over the place. So the NFL needs to adjust too. Uh, you know, luckily they partner with Microsoft. It's amazing. Microsoft actually owns Skype. All right, so I, I gotta <laughs> imagine they can find a way uh, to to you know figure out who they want to pick and make it happen. And that's just, you know, it's, it's, it's everyone's different. Every, the thing is that everyone is sort of equally put out by this, right? And from an NFL standpoint, everyone's dealing with basically the same challenges. It's not like 
the Bengals are disadvantaged more than the Patriots sure. by having to work from home in this scenario. Everyone is pretty much in the same boat. Uh, everyone can figure it out, and we're going to have a draft, uh, and it's not going to be perfect, and maybe you don't get that conversation with that West Coast scout, but there's also there's a telephone. You know what I mean? Like There's a lot of different ways we can figure this whole thing out, uh, and I imagine that you know these NFL teams, when they pick their seven guys, you know, they, they they will figure it all out. They will have a game plan, uh, and you know, oh, I mean, this is the thing. They have all this time to figure this stuff out. They're not meeting with players right now. They're not doing True. the things they normally probably would do. They're not really meeting together as much. And so, yeah, it's, we're just in a very different uh, world. But everyone is everyone has to adjust, and and these coaches and GMs and scouts, they all have to adjust too. What do you remember about your pre-draft experience coming out of Iowa State in, in 2001? That was when Michael Vick was in the class, Drew Brees was in the class, so there were some big names there, and then you had a really good senior season, 9-3. and three. What was it like coming out, and what was that process like when you actually could go through and do these visits and interviews and all those types of things? You know, as you ask me that question, my mind definitely it jumps back into that time in my life. Uh, from my junior year, when the spring of your junior year, you have a junior pro day where you run a 40 and, and some scouts come in and, and they watch the film of all the sort of the underclassmen. Uh, and of course, the, the guys that are going to be seniors and those things. But you have this sort of junior day. And, um, and at that moment, uh, I got ranked as like the fifth or something best, you know, quarterback going into their senior year. It was, it was Breeze. And, and of course, Vic was it when he was younger. But guys like Chris Winky, um, uh, and I was, I was like, wow, I'm on this list. You know, I'm an Iowa State quarterback. We were four and seven. We weren't all that great, and I just couldn't believe I got put on this list with you know guys that were guys like Breeze, who were you know one of the best quarterbacks in the country, sure. uh, coming up. And then of course you have the senior year, and I just always knew that all this any success I've ever had personally was only because my teams did well as a as a team. Uh, you know, I never uh, got a lot of, uh, I should say credit, a lot of um, awards or anything when our, you know, our teams were well below 500. And so for me, it was always about, you know, trying to, trying to get Iowa State to a bowl game. Hadn't been to a bowl game in, I think, 22 years. They'd never won a bowl game at Iowa State. So that really was my sole focus. And when I went to Iowa State, my focus wasn't to make it the NFL. My focus was just to be the quarterback at Iowa State for a year if I could. Okay. I was hoping to be the quarterback for a year. Um, and uh, and then, you know, go on from there and, and have a regular life like everybody else, right? So uh, uh, the fact that I was being mentioned was interesting. Was, so we had this senior year, have a good year, and, and we won a bowl game. We were 9-3. Still is the best record in Iowa State's history. And... Um, you know, right after that, I think the game was on December 28th. I went home for a couple of days to my hometown. On January 2nd, I flew to New Orleans to train in a facility outside of New Orleans uh, with, with a couple other players from my agency. Uh, Dominic Riola, the, the longtime Lions center, was yep. one of those guys. Uh, Moran Norris, who played fullback in the NFL for, I don't know, probably 10 years or something like that. Uh, a couple of those guys down there, and we trained with, uh, a strength coach and, and, and both lifting and running. And, tra- you know, at that point, your job turns into from football player into track meet uh, uh, decathlon. Yeah, right. Person. Like, you have to get fast at this. You have to get fast at this. You have to be strong at this. This is how we're going to make you, you know, stronger, fa- bigger, faster, stronger at that point. 
uh, of course, working on, uh, uh, you know, throwing, throwing uh, drills and trying to work on different drops that maybe you don't do uh, as much in college. And, and uh, I actually had, you know, Brandon Stokely, the wide receiver, his dad was a quarterback's coach okay. at Louisiana Lafayette. He actually would come over and train me uh, once or twice a week, various throwing drills, footwork drills, things, you know, drills I was going to have to do with the combine uh, uh, or, you know, whatever. I also went to the senior bowl. So then, you know, made a couple drive hours east to Mobile, Alabama, went through that whole process as well. Uh, you know, played in that game. Jesse Palmer was the, the quarter, one of the quarterbacks on the other, uh, you know, side of the football. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the, the, then there's the after senior bowl, you still train, and then there's the combine late February. Then it's like stay in shape because you're going to have uh, your workout back at your college. Right. At that point, I actually went home, worked out uh, in my own in my own uh, hometown, basically, um, uh, and got ready for my private workouts. So sort of what all these teams to come in. But I also I had a whole bunch of those. It wasn't just the one main one where the Iowa State did the private workout. I would have, say, I remember the Cincinnati Bengals and, and John Garrett, Jason Garrett's brother. He was a quarterback coach. He came and he just worked me out himself. Okay. He also watched film for a couple hours, just the two of us. There was, a, there was plenty of those scenarios, so I probably had three or four or five of those. And then, of course, you have your actual pro day uh, with scouts there, with some quarterbacks coaches there. Uh, you know, Dick Vermeil and the, the entire Kansas City, um, you know, post is post-combine, the, the entire Kansas City basically uh, staff. I mean, the offensive coordinator, quarterbacks coach, Dick Vermeil, the GM, the assistant GM, I think there was like six or eight of them, all flew up in a private plane, landed in Ames, Iowa, and <laughs> and worked me out. That's crazy. And we had a receiver named we had a receiver named JJ Moses, who's about five seven, and he he still to this day tells this story uh, at for schools and things like that. That you know after this workout, that when I said, "Hey JJ, I need you for this workout," the Chiefs are coming, and we you know can you come in and, and catch balls for me? That Dick Vermeil walked up to him and said. Son, you've made it to the NFL today. You know, if, if no one else drafts you, we're, we're, you're going to be on our football team or whatever. Said, you know, said something like that. And sure enough, he got his chance at the Kansas State Chiefs um, and, and end up playing for I don't know four years or so in the NFL. Um, and but you know that there's so many memories from that when your college season ends all the way until you know the first day of the, your first game all the things in between there, because then, then the draft does happen and that's a whole day of memories. And then you have, uh, you know, these things where you fly to the team and where you meet everybody for the first time. And then you have the thing called the rookie premiere, um, which is they, they take basically a lot of the, uh, you know, basically if you're a third or fourth round quarterback on up on, uh, to the first round in the, maybe the top wide receivers, running backs, sort of the, the, the players that you like to get the cards of yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. when you're getting tops cards, they're all flown to this rookie premiere. It's basically it's a one big three-day or two-day photo shoot uh, uh, at some stadium, right? And so there's all ty- – and that's where all these friendships also build. You know, I ran to Drew Brees at the Combine, gotten to know him, and, and, and say a Jesse Palmer or something like that. And then – uh, there is, you know, then there's the rookie premiere, and then there's this, then there's that, and you know, then there's the rookie symposium, another thing where they bring all the rookies together to give them all these talks about financial resources or this, just different struggles or different concerns NFL players need to have. These rookies need to be informed of to try to get these guys off on their best foot. There's all these things that occur your rookie year 
Um, and that sort of, you know, sets you up uh, for however long your NFL career is. So to go from a guy whose primary goal when he committed to Iowa State was just to be the quarterback at Iowa State for one year, then all of a sudden, fast forward, you end up in this draft whirlwind of the combine and the visits and the workouts and everything. How were you feeling leading up to the draft? Were there parts of your game that you felt really confident in when it came to translating to the NFL game? And were there others that you were nervous about? When, when you talk to players at the Combine, they all say, well, I feel comfortable doing everything, you know, for the most part. Some of them are more honest, but generally it's a time to not incriminate yourself, so to speak. But in your own head at that time, were you feeling nervous about any parts of your game translating to the next level? Yeah, you know, I wasn't a great thrower. Um you know, we, we at Iowa State, I threw 52% completion percentage. Okay. I think my senior year, I threw like eight touchdown passes to like 12 interceptions. Uh, my junior year was like 11 11 or 10 and 10 or something like that. We seriously just did not throw the ball very often. We were like, you remember the Wisconsin teams of the, of, of the days where like the quarterbacks didn't have to actually they hand the ball off a lot. Of course, yeah. The blinds and the zone running game and you know, Ron Dane. Well, that was Dan McCarney came from Wisconsin and Barry Alvarez to Iowa State. So that was very much uh, our MO. And we were not a throwing team. We didn't throw shotgun a lot. I actually ran the ball. I ran for almost 500 yards my senior year. We run the option. Yeah, 10, 10 touchdowns it. rushing your senior year. I, I, I would, yeah, I would say we were one of the first uh, couple teams in, in all of college football that ran the zone read. Um, and you know, my, my junior year, I think it was one of the first plays of the season. We run a zone read and, and we're playing a small school like Indiana state and everyone bites down on this, uh, uh, um, the fake. And I run for like a 50 yard touchdown, uh, first drive of the series or first series of the, uh, of the season. Um, that was a new thing. And, and we sort of gr- just, we grinded it out. We, we won football games, ugly we dominated line of scrimmage. We had a great offensive line. So, yeah, when I got to the NFL and I'm seeing Breeze is throwing the ball 65 times a game at <laughs> Purdue, and Jesse Palmer is just Steve Spurrier throwing the ball the field, and, you know, he's a great thrower in the way they could spin it. And, of course, you know, these guys had private coaching. Chris Winkie uh, played Major League Baseball. You know, I had no, you know, private coaching growing up. I was a multi-sport athlete from a really – an actual town of 300 people is where I went to elementary school. Wow. And then ended up graduating from a town with, with 6,000 people in the class of 144. So I did not have, you know, the private quarterbacks coach in Southern California or in, in Dallas, Texas. And I didn't do seven-on-seven seven tournaments. And I didn't do all these things that everybody else did. So I felt like I was, you know, a complete outsider – uh, and very un- sort of un- underprepared for what a lot of these other guys have done in their college careers and maybe what they had done in their style of offenses. Our offense was really simple. Uh, we executed a really high level, uh, but, you know, completion percentage and, and throwing a lot of touchdown passes and having a lot of accuracy, uh, I-, I had not had that. And, and you know, we- I just had not been coached uh, probably all that well uh, you know, from that aspect. But, you know, we found a way to win, win nine football games and, and people took notice. 
So one of the things that gets blown up now in the modern draft area because of social media and Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff is all of these quotes from scouts, anonymous scouts or members of the scouting departments, organizations, GMs, et cetera, about what guys, you know, how they evaluate them, what they think of them, et cetera, et cetera. Well, back in the day, they didn't all used to be anonymous. Some of them were, some of them weren't. But when I covered the Packers, I worked with a guy named Bob McGinn, a fellow writer who'd covered the league for, you know, almost 40 years now. And he has this encyclopedic collection of all the guys he used to talk to because he does a draft series every year. So I asked him, I was, I called him over the weekend and I said, Hey, can I, can you read me some of the quotes evaluating Sage from these guys coming out of the draft? And I think you'll get a kick out of some of these. Uh, so Jerry Angelo, GM of the bears quote, he might come up and be a pretty good quarterback in two or three years. He's so big and was so much a part of their success. End quote. John Butler, GM of the chargers quote, Interesting. He's a guy I'd feel a lot better taking a chance on. I think he's got quick reads. He has the ball delivered on time. He does things to get it out of there and let people make plays. I like that. He's not all that bad. End quote. Then, and then <laughs> yeah, right. The last line is great. And then here's one from an anonymous NFC evaluator. Yeah, here's one from an anonymous NFC guy. I think this is going to make you laugh. Quote. He can't play in this league. When he lets it go, he's the last guy who knows where it's going, end quote. <laughs> well, I think the last guy is probably the most <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. on it with it. Uh, um, and then they got a couple more. A couple know, I, more. I, I, was, I was extremely raw. Um, you know, I, there was a guy, there was a, a coach that when I came out, he was a San Diego Chargers coach. I think his name was Mike Johnson. Okay. Um, I believe he was a Chargers quarterback coach. Ended up going to Atlanta for a bit. And and my uh, a private workout. This is post combine. This is when they come to your school. And, and you know, again, a, a lot of teams are represented at the deal. But there's only so many quarterback coaches. I had Wade Wilson uh, from the Cowboys. Uh, I had uh, Brian Schottenheimer from Washington, and then uh, Mike Johnson. Uh, from San Diego Chargers, and, and, I, and I think some others as well. But these are the sort of three I remember the most that sort of really uh, helps me with my drills. You know, they were out there sort of coaching me on the drills, and they, I basically just listened to them run the workout. Um, but Mike said to me, you know, I look for quarterbacks who make people around them better. Okay. Uh, because those types of quarterbacks uh, raise the level of play. You know, the guy, you can just sort of see it the way the offensive line blocks, where there's something about quarterbacks who make people better. Drew Brees has done, has obviously did that at Purdue. He raised the organization basically to a level they hadn't been. It wasn't like all of a sudden Purdue had more talent than Michigan and Ohio state, but then as they went to the Rose Bowl and won it, uh, everyone played at a really, really high level played together, something about that. So I think I got probably a lot of uh, a credit uh, for being, you know, the, the the trigger man on a team that had sort of come out of nowhere and I don't want to say shocked college football, uh, but shocked a lot of people in, in, the, in the Midwest who hadn't seen Iowa State do anything in over two decades. Right. Uh, and But, you know, at the end of the day, honestly, it was, it was a lot of really good offensive line play. We always had good running backs. Again, you know, the Wisconsin model. Um, but there were some things that, you know, I, I, I would quote-unquote manage the game. I would – uh, be clutch enough on the key third downs or the key plays in the game. Uh, uh, and I, you know, I did whatever I could. Uh, and I, uh, maybe there's a toughness there, um, but there's sort of that winner mentality that probably sure. sort of helps me out. But physically, if you just watch the film and do nothing else, you'd be anything but impressed. Um, it, I didn't have a strong arm. 
I wasn't super accurate. I didn't really understand how defenses worked all that much. Um, you know, I had sort of basic knowledge of football, um, but I could absolutely tell you which was the better way to run the option. I tell you that right now. You know, I line up our center option route to right uh, option to the right uh, versus this front is much much better than the option to the left. Like those types of things, uh, I definitely could tell you. So yeah, when I got to the to Washington as a rookie, um, I was. And I say this to a lot of people: the 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 rookie for a quarterback who rookie that is, is coming in, you have it, there's a there's a really broad spectrum as to how close they are as far as being ready to play. Um, there's only so much a rookie coach can really teach these guys over the course of the summer, and particularly even now. But some guys were taught sort of NFL style football. Uh, with the complexity, you're just not going to get the complexity in college football as a pro. You're just not. The, you know, a college football quarterback might get three hours a week or less a week with his quarterback's coach, okay, uh, with his offensive coordinator. Maybe they get up to like six, even this is during the season. You know, I'm, I'm talking in classroom, watching film, the, the complexity and the detail you just don't have in college football. It has to be a simpler game because of time. Sure. The pro game is all ball all the time. So there's this really big mental jump of protections and route concepts and footwork and detail and why and cover. And it just, it's, it's, it's a big, big jump. And my jump was probably much bigger than say Jesse Palmer's jump, uh, who, even though Spurrier wasn't great with protection, they were really good, and I, and I know this because I played for Spurrier my second year. He was good with teaching guys good route combinations that worked versus various coverages. Uh, he was very good at putting in uh, coverage beaters. You know, cover four, we want to run this. Cover one, we, want, we like to run these types of plays because they allowed the, the quarterbacks to audible a lot versus those various coverages that they saw them. I did not have that uh, um I guess that level of detail in my college coaching. So I probably came in, uh, you know, well, uh, the one, I think the one GM or the one uh, scout said, you know, two to three years. Yeah. I was one of those guys that it's going to take me two or three years before I could start to go like, I can play in this league. And it did take me that long. And and very luckily I didn't even have my first start until uh, the last game of my fourth year. Um, And because I think if I'd have played as as a, especially as a rookie, uh, I would have been out of the league as a rookie because I was vastly unprepared to, to play in the league. Yeah, so your rookie season, you end up being a fourth-round pick to Washington. They have Tony Banks and Jeff George uh, as their quarterbacks. Marty Schottenheimer, the coach. Brian Schottenheimer, the quarterback's coach, who's now the offensive coordinator in Seattle. Um, you know, you didn't have to play that season like you mentioned. And then right before the start of the next season during training camp, you get traded to Miami. Did you have any inclination that your time in, in Washington was done? And, and what is it like to be traded for the first time? Well, you know, the Washington, you know, I, I feel like all this is a book, right? Like every NFL player should almost write a book, right. about, especially if they're a journeyman type of player, you know what I mean? Because they bounce every season, sort of its own craziness and coaches and whatever. But, you know, Washington, Marty Schottenheimer got there, uh, and at the time, I, I believe it was like a four-year, $10 million contract. And that was a lot at the time. He was making $2.5 million a year. Um, Jeff George is the starter. Uh, Todd Hustack, who had been drafting the sixth round the year before, actually was the number two, and I was number three. Okay. Well, we get about midway, we get about midway, midway through training camp, and Tony Banks gets cut from the Dallas Cowboys. They decided to go with Quincy Carter, who they drafted in the second round. 
And so we immediately signed Tony Banks, uh, which sort of puts, you know, there's a Todd or I is going to make the team, of course. I'm the fourth-round draft pick of this year by this staff, so I, I probably have the inside scoop. I did play better than, than Todd in the preseason game. So I make this team. We go 0-5. We end up 8-8. Eight and eight. Uh, And Marty Schottenheim would get fired after the season, um, which is sort of crazy to win eight out of your last 11 games. And get uh, fired. First, you know, year head coach and get fired. This is early Dan. This is like, you know, year three or four, three maybe of the Dan Snyder era of Redskins misery. Um, and uh, so Spurrier comes in and the quarterbacks other than me were uh, Shane Matthews. I'm sorry. No, the quarterbacks other than me were, were Danny Werfel. Danny Werfel's on the roster. I think we had like Spurgeon win or somebody else on the team. The draft comes, they draft Patrick Ramsey in the first round. So now we got, you know, Heisman Trophy winner for Spurrier and a first rounder in me. All right. Uh, and then we actually end up signing Shane Matthews, another uh, Florida quarterback. Uh, uh, so we have two Florida quarterbacks who have like, you know, six SEC MVPs between the two. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then we have um, a first round draft pick and me. So obviously I was the odd man out. And I, and I always give credit to Steve Spurrier um that he gave me a chance he let me compete uh, I, I would say absolutely equal with those guys for the off season for training camp i even started we had five preseason games that year i started a preseason game in osaka japan wow washington versus san francisco i got to have that experience uh and all that without went along with that but he i started that game played the first half uh, uh and then uh um Danny Warfel played the second half, um, but got to play these preseason games, got traded at the end of the preseason uh, because obviously they, they had their two guys. They had a uh, first round draft pick. So I was sort of the odd man out there and uh, in Miami, you know, and Rick Spielman uh, traded for me. One of uh, two times Rick Spielman traded for me uh, yep. in my NFL career. Um, so that, you know, of course changed my life uh, from living in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., now down to Miami, Florida in 94-degree weather with uh, 80% humidity in August. It was, it was quite, the, uh, quite the move. So that was one thing I wanted to ask you about. You know, I always remember talking to agents who are representing guys who are free agents and sometimes players, and they talk about how it really is totally different to live in Miami, whether it's any sport, whether it's football, you know, baseball, basketball, whatever, um, to live in that type of environment where there's beaches, where there's clubs, where there's just a party scene, where it's just you can basically live on vacation all year round. What is it like to, to actually be there as a player for a few years? Because you were there from 02 to 05. Yeah, you know, every team is a little different, but for the most part, teams do have their um, their facility a lot of times, you know, outside of the city, not right. in the city. And you guys were and, in Davie, and, right? D- yeah, in, in D.C., you're in Ashburn, Virginia, so it's very suburb. Right. You know, it's, you're, you're very much in the suburbs. It's, uh, you're 30, 45 minutes in good traffic to downtown D.C. So, so you're out there in, in some big industrial park. Uh, the teams buy a certain amount of land or whatever. They put up some fields in the a building, and that's sort of how uh, that, that, that business model goes. Um, in Miami, uh, of course, you don't have huge industrial parks out in the middle of the, the Everglades, but they have their, theirs is in Davie, uh, sort of on the campus of Nova Southeastern University, uh, where they, they have enough space, where they have two practice fields, and they end up building a, a bubble on some other land that the team bought 
uh, or, or worked with the school on, however that works. And of course they have their facility there too. So, um, but you're still sort of in the burbs in a sense. You're in the burbs of Fort Lauderdale. You're actually not even in Miami. You're, you're a good 30, uh, to, to in good traffic, again, in good traffic, 30 minutes to Miami. So you, you are a little bit separated from that world. Uh, but it is, it's Miami and it, it's a whole different, you know, it's sort of like Las Vegas with, uh, with the ocean in a lot of ways <laughs> and no gambling, like it, it changes in, uh, the ocean for gambling. Um, but there's all the other uh, distractions of Las Vegas, right? And it's Miami. So, uh, it is a, it's a whole different place to play. You know, one of the best things about Miami or the most different things about Miami is because it's, it, it's so close to the United States. It's almost in the United States, uh, South Florida. That's, that's, that's a joke of mine. If you didn't get that, no, I got um, you. But it's I, a different experience. Yeah, obviously, the, there's the clubs nearby. There's a lot of distractions. There's nonstop festivals and music festivals and, and this, that, and the other. Especially in the winter time, where people are trying to get out of uh, the, the Northeast to come down, and, and it's 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 a, it's a whole different world down there, and uh, and definitely very different than living in you know, Eden Prairie, uh, uh, Minnesota, of which I lived, you know, a few years later after, after leaving Miami. So it, it's a different place to live, different place to play. Uh, but for me, it was a great experience to have that. And I'm glad I had that in my life, uh, to, to live in that area. And I'm also happy I'm not raising my kids down there. Yeah. It's just fine by me to raise my kids in a place that feels, uh, a little bit more in rea- reality than that place, which there's not a lot of reality in South Florida. So when you got there, Dave Wants, that was the head coach. Norv Turner was your first offensive coordinator. The quarterbacks that you were teammates with, they had Jay Fiedler at times, Brian Greasy, A.J. Feely, Gus Farratt. Mark Tressman came in, another name that people probably know listening to this podcast, was the quarterback's coach later. Um, you know, you had Chris Carter as a teammate briefly. Ricky Williams was there. Um, what was just that that group of guys like? And, and to be able to be with one team for three, four years in a row, how did that help your growth and understanding of the game as a quarterback as opposed to one system and then traded? Yeah, so, you know, I was in Miami for four years, and after I ended up going to Houston for three, right? So these are the two places I was at the longest in my career. Right. Fairly, fairly decent stretches. Uh, and I played a lot more in Houston. But the stories that I had and the personalities that I have from my Miami experience of four years, uh, I have a never ending amount of, <laughs> uh, weird situations or things coaches said, or things that happened to players or, I mean, Dave Wands said that stuff, as you said, North Turner, uh, Mike Shula, that was the first coaches that I had when I was there. Um, uh, you know, my, my first start, I mentioned earlier, my first start, my fourth year, the last game were at, uh, uh, Baltimore. Yep. Jason Garrett is my backup quarterback. Okay. <laughs> He's my backup quarterback. AJ Feely is hurt. I'm getting my first career start. AJ uh, and, and Jason Garrett's my backup quarterback. Um, and uh, uh, the following year, when Saban comes in after after um, after uh, Wanson gets fired, uh, now I have Jason Garrett is my quarterback coach. Scott <laughs> Linehan is my offensive coordinator. Uh, Will Muschamp is our basically our defensive coordinator. That's wild. Uh, you know, we have all these coaches on that staff, all this Saban, uh, the, sort of the, the Saban world. You know, Derek Dooley was our tight ends coach, and he, of course, is more of a college football coach, but has been in the NFL too uh, with the Dallas Cowboys and Jason Garrett. So there was that was an interesting time to play for Nick Saban for a year um, and have those. I mean, 
I don't know. I, I might be one of the only people to ever play for Steve Spurrier and Nick Saban. That's a pretty unique. That uh, is pretty uh, cool. Uh, journey with a with a little Dave Wanstead mixed in between. I mean, uh, but yes, Ricky Williams on that team. Of course, I was there for when he uh, uh, quit football and, and was in India. And Dan Lebertard lived in my neighborhood and. Hearing that Lebertard's over there found Ricky in some campground. And, oh my gosh! You know, all that was going on, uh, you know, during that you know, time. Jason, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jason Taylor, obviously a great player. Junior Seau, uh, a linebacker on the team, we traded a fifth round draft pick for, and and was just what a, what what a guy and, and what an experience to be a teammate with him. Um, uh, Patrick Sertan and Sam Madison. We had really Zach Thomas. Yeah, Zach Thomas. I think a, I think a Hall of Fame player, absolutely. And uh, and he was really the leader of that team, um, uh, in particular of that defense. Um, so it, it, that was a sort of wild four years. And all of that, of course, in the world of Miami, um, that that was a, 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 a there's a lot of memories that come out of those four years in Miami. So what do you remember about getting your first start? You mentioned that you you called it kind of a luxury that you didn't have to start earlier in your career. So like you said, it's week 17 of 2004. You go to play the Ravens. They've got Bart Scott, Ray Lewis, Ed Reed, you know, some of the iconic defensive players of that era. And you're making your very first start. How nervous were you? And, and what was it like to actually be the guy, you know, in practice for a week? Well, by the way, let, let's not forget Deion Sanders in the nickel, in the slot. Oh, right? I forgot that was, about uh, that. You know, you know, I, I believe. Uh, You're right. You're right. Uh, Terrell Suggs, I think, was also a rookie on that team. Yep. Adelius uh, Thomas was still uh, really good. Was, was it Chris McAllister? Maybe was a corner. Yep, Chris so, McAllister. Yeah, that was that was an interesting. You know, that was my first career start, and I'm on a team. This is the last of the last of the three day Wanstead years I had. And the team had fallen apart. We started off one and nine. Wanda gets fired. Uh, Jim Bates takes over the football team. He's our defensive coordinator. We're, we're a disaster on offense. Ricky had quit. So we, we had sort of solely relied on really good defense and Ricky Williams the previous two years to get to our <laughs> nine and ten wins. Okay. Ricky quit. We, we don't have an offensive line that's very good. Uh, uh, um, we sort of don't have a coordinator uh, for various reasons. Our, our coordinator at the time decided he didn't want that job because North Turner left late the year before to take that Oakland Raiders job as the head coach. And, of course, he wasn't hired until, like, mid-February. So we're, like, way behind. Uh, and, and it just we, – we didn't have – Mark Trespin, who was the quarterback coach, should have been the coordinator. So no-brainer. He had experience. He had good experience. He, he was the guy that was the – the coordinator for the really good Rich Gannon years out in Oakland. Yep. But since he was more of a throwing guy, a true West Coast, you know, they, they, of course, we all know they threw the ball a lot with Rich Gannon, high completion percentage. And Dave Wan said that was not his style. He was a, you know, you got really Dallas Cowboys and, and those years of offensive line, good defense, grind it out with the running game, star running back. Uh, it's not a throw it around guy. And I do believe that Trustman would have been a run it guy. He would have known, like, this is the type of team we're going to – whatever he would have been, it would have been better than the situation we had. So okay. we didn't really have uh, a, a true coordinator that year. So then season being sort of a disaster. And so I'm going into to week 17, and A.J. Philly had gotten hurt. We had signed Jason Garrett a few weeks earlier, and we're playing at Baltimore. We have nothing to play for. I think we're 4-11. and, and, and 11. 
So we really have nothing to play for. Baltimore is right there at like uh, eight and se- eight and seven or or nine and six, where they sort of need this win to have a chance to make the playoffs. Uh, but luckily, their offense wasn't very good, but their defense was one of the best in the league. Uh, um, and so the reason they weren't successful that year is because they didn't have very good offense. Okay. And, and you know, Wes Welker was our punt returner, kick returner. Didn't even play much wide receiver for us on that football team, believe it or not. Um, and and so it was uh, it, it was not it, the first play of the game. We decided to go a double move on the first play, take a shot, and I throw a seventy-eight yard touchdown pass. Of course, not in the air, uh, but to, to Chris Chambers on basically a, a double move on the outside. And it was it was all uphill after that. So the game started <laughs> off great for myself of throwing a long touchdown pass, but uh, of course ended up throwing three interceptions uh, uh, to to the Ravens. But I did show enough in that game and competed enough, and, and we we we're, it, it was a close game to the end. Uh, but I, I guess I showed enough for for the uh, for the Dolphins to sign me back to a one year deal. Uh, and again, Jason Garrett went from playing behind me to then being the quarterbacks coach, and he was probably the number one voice that I had of like, we should sign backstage. Uh, he saw enough in his time of being the, you know, the, the backup third string quarterback uh, in I think five or six games that uh, he saw, he saw a future uh, with, with me in, in the NFL as, as a quarterback. And, and uh, so I signed back up for a one year deal the next year and, and, and then I had a chance to play for Nick Saban, which probably took, you know, four or five years off my life. <laughs> um, one of the stories that I was reading to prepare for, you know, talking to you today was the, the column that you wrote after the the Bounty Gate game, the NFC title game between, you know, the Vikings and, and the New Orleans Saints. And, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I was just curious, one of the things that you wrote in there, there was a, a passage where um, you guys were managing clock late in that game and you talked about running up to, I believe it was Daryl Bevel and kind of giving him an idea or saying, hey, we should try and do this to save clock or run one more play, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that always kind of fascinated me in the years that I was covering the Packers was how and in which ways a the good backup quarterbacks can still influence a game while the game is being played. So how did you try and be as beneficial and helpful as possible to coaches, teammates, whatever, given that most of your career was as a supporting character? Well, there's a couple of things that go into that. You know, one, I, I, I left Houston after being there for three years and I'd gotten a lot of starts in Houston and, yep. and, but you know, Matt Schaub was, had been sort of the anointed one and he had the huge contract. And so I, I worked to trade in Minnesota to, to compete with Tavares Jackson to be the starter on a team that went 10 and six the year before I really looked at it as this was my first uh, and maybe only shot uh, of, of truly being an NFL starter in this league where there wasn't sort of an, an anointed guy uh, ahead of me. Uh, and I'd also, I played, you know, pre dang well in Houston to, to have that opportunity. Yep, yep. And of course, then Barb shows up and we, we have this whole year, you know, I ended up being the third string guy, you know, Childress Tavares was Childress's guy. So he was the backup. Uh, I played really well in the preseason. Um, I thought I outplayed Tavares in training camp. It didn't matter. I was a third string guy. So, you know, I could have been one of those, you know, third string guys that's miserable and sour grapes. But, you know, I also looked at it as, you know, I was uh, uh, I was making three million dollars a year. Uh, I'm the third string quarterback. I'm probably not going to play, and we have a chance to win a Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I can look at the negative and that, like I got screwed, or go, you know what? I'm going to do the best job I can in the role that I have right now. Uh, and Nick Saban used to talk about you know knowing your role on the team and whatever. So I'm on this team. I'm going to try to make the most situation and not be a you know, distraction, not be a 
uh, one of these pissed off people. Uh, you know, I've, we all know people that are, are struggling in this world and here I, there's no reason I should be, you know, sure. super upset about being the third string quarterback making this type of money. So uh, I ended up being a little bit of a, of course, I didn't know Brett be, before he showed up and developing that relationship with him. A lock was, was right near him too. And, you know, also I, I've known Daryl Bevel since he, I was 19 years old. He uh, was a GA Again, that Wisconsin to Iowa State connection from my college head coach. Oh, okay. Uh, he was uh, he was a GA at Iowa State for a year or two uh, when he first got into coaching, um, and so I'd known him for a long time. So as the season progresses and you build those relationships with the staff, you know, there's a trust there. Uh, there's all those conversations that occur in the meetings, and and I think that they respected my opinion. They had known that I was, you know, I think they knew I was taught well. They, they knew that Kubiak and Kyle were good coaches, and I may have seen some things, but they, they didn't always see. So I had a good working relationship with all of them and, you know, probably became a little bit more of a coach that year, per se, than an actual, you know, player. And, and But there's also, there is, a, there is definitely a lot of finessing that goes into playing that role. You could actually just say nothing, stay in the back, not be a part of it, and you can never screw up, right? But there's also a chance of you step on someone's toes, you say we should do this or whatever, and it irks somebody the wrong way, and blah, blah, blah. So there's a, definitely a sort of finessing that goes in there to sort of having that, that relationship with the starting quarterback, that relationship with the, uh, with the offensive coordinator, the quarterback coach, all those things, and that sort of grew, I think, throughout the year. There's no way I could have done that with Brad Childress, though. He and I did not have uh, a relationship where I could recommend him anything. Gotcha. Uh, but I think knowing Bell for such a long time and Bell being a guy that didn't have a big ego and doesn't have a huge ego, I think those coaches do the best with, uh, not necessarily advice, but with like, you know, we could do this. Uh, you know, here's are some options that you can choose from and to have more minds working on uh, plays that we could run or formations that we could do or how to, a rig a protection a certain way. I think having more, you know, ideas uh, can be a very, very good thing. Um, and um, that was in some ways my, my role in that team. Now that play in particular, I don't think, I don't think I walk up to Belvin and gave him a recommendation. I think I just asked him, what are we doing? Cause I was, you know, that, that's definitely not a spot where you say we should do this. You know, this is to go to the Super Bowl. This is not my, this is not my role. Right. Gotcha. But I did ask him what play we were going to call, um, um, you know, possibly coming out of a timeout, I think. And he told me the play, and I remember turning around thinking to myself, like, oh, I wish we were just running the football. I wish it wasn't <laughs> uh, a pass play. And it was a super – if you're going to have a pass play, it was a very safe pass play, I will say. It wasn't like he, he rolled the dice. It was a safe pass play. Uh, usually there's a completion there. If not, it's a throwaway. Um, but the problem is we come out of this timeout, we run this play, we have 12 men to huddle. We get pushed back five yards. We run the same play. And since we're in a bunch set, the defense turns from man to man into a cover two zone, which is the worst play for this play, uh, the worst defense for this play where, where we're running, which is sort of a pick type of play, uh, not good versus a, a cover two zone defense. And, of course, Favre ends up trying to make a play, throws the ball across his body, gets intercepted, end of, uh, uh, you know, going to overtime, lose, don't go to the Super Bowl, end of season. I can't sleep for a couple of days. I write this article, ends up being in Sports Illustrated. And, of course, like four years later, 
Um, but uh, that was, I guess, the beginning of my quasi media career that I that I guess I sort of have. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, podcasts and radio and and all that stuff. You've you've joined the dark side, I will say. Um, so I'm curious, what did you take away most from the two years in Houston where you started a lot, you know, starting five games in 07, five games in 08, that's right before you go, you know, to Minnesota where you have the, the greatest success in terms of team success of a group that you've been part of. What did you take away from, you know, 10 weeks as, as the guy, whether it's in, in practice meetings, media responsibilities, how did that help you, you know, toward the latter stages of your career? Well, you know, when I was playing the, the, the most in Houston there, the, the, the first starts you have, or when you first start playing the league, every play feels like it's fourth down in the Super Bowl, right? It's, you know, it's, it's, you have so much limited experience and, and how games are won and plays that matter and all these things. But the more you play, the more you do realize that football games, uh, you have to sort of take a step back and look at the big picture. You know, who are we playing Who's their quarterback? What's the score in the game? How aggressive should I be? When should I be aggressive? When should I be more conservative? Uh, is it okay to take a sack here because you know what? Their offense isn't very good. And if we have to, we'll just punt. The worst thing to do is to be. So those things you learn, I think, as you start to have more and more starts. And I, and I felt like for me in Houston, uh, I got to the point where I felt much, much more comfortable uh, and sort of um, – you know, playing the game from that mentality of, of, you know, over the course of this game, I, we've got better players. We're going to make some plays. I don't have to make this play right now. Maybe a little more conservative to live for another day or no. Now in situations, the fourth quarter, we're down by 14. I got to be super aggressive. I got to be super aggressive, but I also I got to take these completions and we got to go. We got to go. Like there's various ways to win and stay in football games. I think you sort of take a step back the, the more the more experience you have uh, and it sort of changes, uh, you know, the, the way you attack each play and attack each series. Do you think being involved with so many different systems early in your career through coaching changes and all those types of mm-hmm. things, changing teams, did that help? In a, in a broader sense with your understanding X's and O's wise of the game, or was it so much change that it, that it maybe um, made things confusing at times because you never had a lot of consistency year over year over year? Yeah. Having the same coaches year in and year out definitely helps, but I think, um, I think it's, uh, if, if, if it's not the right offense, if it's an offense that's not creative, if it's an offense that doesn't do a good job of protecting the quarterback, if it's an offense that doesn't have a very good O-line coach, that can be a big hindrance uh, on a quarterback. You know, was, you know, I always felt like I was sort of an execution guy. Uh, I was much better with the bootlegs and the play action uh, and things like that. I wasn't some great pocket passer, uh, and some quarterbacks are. So for me, it, it, it was probably – good that I worked through those initial systems. And then I got to the Kubiak-Kyle Shanahan system, and that offense really fit my skill set. I also thought they did the best job of teaching me the game, teaching me how football works from a schematic standpoint, from what defenses do and what offenses do to counteract that. And, and I just thought we had the most creativity and understanding of, of coverages and, and, and coverage uh, uh, techniques um, from those coaches, from Gary but a lot from Kyle Shanahan, who taught me, uh, I, I think more. And I, and I love, you know, I love 
playing for Jason Garrett. Love playing for Merrick Turner. Love playing for Brian Schottenheimer. And by the way, very young Brian Schottenheimer, 26 years old as first-time quarterback coach. So very different than the Brian Schottenheimer of today, right. who is in his you know upper 40s or whatever, mid mid upper 40s, as now a longtime coordinator. The game evolves, but um, I, I think for me, I I look at it as yes, there's some negatives to bouncing around, but I think it gives you a um, uh, uh, a different experience uh, of, of growth too. And I think it's probably well guys like, especially when they're done playing football, you know, guys like Dan Orlovsky uh, are, are doing really well afterwards because they do have the experience of all these various systems. It does give you a very well-rounded view of strategy in the game of football. It probably helped too in Houston to be able to throw the ball to a guy like Andre Johnson, uh, who was just named to the All Decade team. Was he uh, as good as advertised? Awesome, awesome. And you know, NFL teams allow receivers for whatever reason and defensive backs to be a little bit more pain in the neck, pain in the neck. I feel like than other positions. You know, with distractions and things like that, they just seem to have more leeway. Okay. Uh, Andre Johnson was not that. He was the other way around. He was the opposite of distraction. Um, he let us. He, he was a guy who said less and did more. Uh, he worked extremely hard. He was very talented, but he also probably I, he truly worked the hardest of anybody on our football team. Uh, our summer workouts were Monday through Thursday. And then if you wanted to, Andre did the Andre Johnson slash University of Miami Hurricanes workout on Friday in the <laughs> offseason. And, if, you know, not a ton of guys went to that. You know, 15 guys, 25 guys, 10 guys. That thing was miserable. I didn't go to it. I think I went to it one time. And I'm like, I'm not doing this again. This is, this is terrible. I've already worked out my four times this week. Um, it was, and so Andre worked at a different level, but also he wasn't a complainer. Uh, he wasn't, uh, he was a guy that would do the dirty work. He was a receiver that would get in there and block and get nasty with, with, uh, uh, with safeties and with corners. Um, he would compete like crazy. He had a very high expectation of himself, uh, which means and he also had very high expectations of what other people should do uh, if we're going to win football games. He came from a winning culture at the University of Miami, uh, and, and he expected that, uh, you know, and, but he got drafted to a team where there was no culture, right. where there was none of that. And luckily, Gary Kubiak brought that, I think, professionalism uh, to be a pro every single day. That was sort of one of Gary's things. I don't know if he's, those are the exact words, but it was sort of like, what would a pro do? A real pro. It'd sit back and go, what, is a, what does a pro quarterback do? What does a pro wide receiver do? I'm a professional at what I do. Do that, whether you're out having dinner with your friends, or whether you're in the weight room. What does a pro do in those situations? And in some ways, what's an adult do, right? And, and Andre uh, was, had all that and didn't give us all the juvenile, a lot of times, uh, things that you see from a lot of top wide receivers in the league. When you spoke earlier about how a lot of journeyman players could potentially write a book about their careers and different teams could be different chapters, I imagine you could probably get away with maybe a volume or two about your time with, with Brett Favre. And so what was it like to, to sort of develop a relationship with him? And, and why did you think you two in particular, maybe from a personality standpoint or a football standpoint, formed a successful partnership for that 09 season? Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think, I think Brett uh, did have some empathy for Tavares and I. You know, he knows that we're, we're two 
guys, and, and Tavares younger than I was. Uh, and I, you know, he knew this was probably one of my shots of, of being the starter. And he shows up, and and that's over. Like I think he did actually empathize with us, and then probably appreciated uh, how we dealt with it. That we, you know, we weren't pissed at him. You know, we we were, we're, were and, and and I'm sure Tavares and I were so impressed in just the early practices of the way he threw the football. It's like holy cow, you know, that's that's a Hall of Fame quarterback right there. So I think that I, I think I'm from a really small hometown. You know, it's a, a country uh, a farming town in eastern Iowa. You know, Brett is from the country uh, in in uh, in Mississippi. So I think, you know, I'm not a big, rich suburb type of kid or big city type of guy or whatever. Uh, so I think we have that ability uh, t- to connect to sort of being more small town uh, mentality. Um, and I think also that I had seen a lot of football over the years and, and I, I'd seen a lot of uh, really, really, uh, uh, high-end uh, uh, strategy and coaching of football coming just from, from Kubiak and Kyle Shanahan. And so when I bring up some of these things to Brett, I think he liked those some of those ideas because he had not been in that offense and maybe uh, had some of that scheme. Um, and he had been in the more traditional, very traditional West Coast offense. A lot of plays that we ran that season, no teams run in the NFL anymore. Uh, just old school sort of Mike Holmgren, almost Bill Walsh style of plays. Plays that I ran my rookie year with Brian Schottenheimer in Washington. But again, some of those plays no one runs anymore. Uh, the game has just changed. And, um, and I think that, you know, I was a little bit on the, the forefront of that, having Kyle as my uh, quarterback coach and coordinator. And Brett probably, uh, probably liked some of those ideas that I would bring into the table. And again, I, I think we just, we just worked well together. Was it, um, was it unique or, or maybe even eye opening to see him do the things that he was doing at, at 40 years old? Incredible. Uh, incredible. I, I was, I was 31, I believe. And Brett was 39 turning 40. And I remember getting uh, a couple uh, weeks into the season, you know, in particular the famous San Francisco 49ers game. I think it's the third game of the season and the hits he took and the throws he made and the plays that were, were made that were not by design, but by just sheer creativity and making guys miss in the pocket and just firing balls 25 yards down the field with crazy. I had never seen anything like that before. And I thought to myself, there's just no way at 31, there's no way I could make that throw. And there is no way I could take the hit that he's taking and survive. Uh, I, I'm not a, you know, I don't know if you call him, uh, uh, he's, you know, country strong. Sure. He was a guy that was just a strong man. And I didn't, I didn't have that in my DNA. And so I just, I knew physically I couldn't do some of those things that he was doing. He had such a strong arm. His accuracy was crazy good. And but also the ability to, to move and to, to, to be a playmaker uh, was just nothing that I had seen up to that point in my career. With the type of hits that he did take, did he show it at all Monday through Saturday when the television cameras weren't on? Like, was he able to practice every week, or was he still hurting pretty badly in between games? Um, you know, he would definitely be sore. Um, but he usually practiced on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, and, and it, it wasn't they weren't injuries, it was soreness, and he would practice through all those things that didn't seem to hamper him from too long he'd be really sore and sort of hobbling and on a monday and a tuesday or whatever but by wednesday you know he might split some reps if he was hurt a little bit more than others if it was actually more of injury and and Tavares would usually take a little bit more 
uh, you know, of those reps. But, you know, for the most part, from what I remember, he practiced basically fully Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, that almost entire season. He did not take uh, too many days off, you know, that year. How did you guys feel as a team going into New Orleans that year for the NFC title game? You know, the first part of that article you wrote really set the stage nicely in terms of what the atmosphere was like in New Orleans with Vikings fans and Saints fans going crazy and people out in the streets and tailgating and all that kind of stuff. But as a team, how did you guys feel, you know, with Favre as your guy, with 12-4 and four as a regular season record? Did it seem like it was, it was, you know, the Super Bowl was there for you guys to take? I think so. I, I think we, we knew we were the most talented team in the NFL that year, that we were a better overall team than that as far as, you know, great players, you know, hall of, a lot of Hall of Fame type players on that team. Favre had an unbelievable season, but we were not necessarily playing our best football as we entered the playoffs. Now, we got the bye. We were number two seed. Um, we, we were trying to get that one seed. But again, we, we tailed off late in the year, had a couple tough losses, one at Chicago and one at Carolina, you know, both in the last about month of the season, and that hurt our chances. So we ended up being this two seed. Uh, we destroyed Dallas in a playoff game at home. I mean, just total domination, in, in particular in the second half and the fourth quarter. Far was incredible. Uh, and, and so going to this game, we felt good. Um, we felt fresh. We felt energized. Far was playing great. But then you go to New Orleans, and, you know, I live in Omaha, Nebraska, and the College World Series is here. And a lot of times, LSU is one of those teams that ends up in the College World Series. We all know they've got a great baseball tradition. The people of Omaha love it when the LSU Tigers <laughs> make it to the College World Series. They do. It's almost like Omaha's adopted other team to, you know, Creighton in Nebraska. Um, because the fans are so much fun. They're so friendly. They just want to have a good time. They want to party and let loose. And it's just sort of another level. There's a lot of LSU fans that come to the College World Series even when they don't even make it. And they still have their tailgates and, and, uh, and, and shrimp broils and all those types of things. So that's just sort of a first handle. Like people from Louisiana are different. Okay. People from New Orleans are different. Their uh, experience as fans and showing their passion for their Saints is, is just different than in Green Bay or in Minnesota or in Chicago uh, or with, you know, the L.A. Rams. It's a different type. They're, they're a very passionate people and they ex- love expressing themselves. And so, yes, the, the, the lead up to the game, leaving the hotel, even the night before pulling into the hotel uh, and, and just sort of seeing the streets and seeing the, the Mardi Gras type atmosphere the night before in that city. And then of course the driving to the game. Um, and, and then in that stadium, I had never been and, 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 and never will be probably a part of anything like that in my life. Did the game look as, as fishy to you as eventually it turned out to be when all the reporting came out about what was going on with the saints and, and, you know, the, the hits on Favre and everything, did it look unusual to watch it from the sideline? No, just because we knew going into the game, it had already been documented before that game that the coordinator uh, uh, was, you know, there were some things set of press conferences or some rumors out there, but it was sort of one of those like secrets out in the open type of deals. Gotcha. That one of their strategies was to take the quarterback out of the game. I think they even said that earlier in the year 
yeah, we'd love to have the quarterback hurting out of the game. So we're going to hit him as much as we can, uh, and it, you know, legally. But you know, if we can get the quarterback out of the game, we have a much better chance of winning that game. And that type of talk had never, you know, ha- has always been sort of not accepted in football, uh, uh, in the NFL, to actually hoping for an injury to another uh, right. uh, uh, somebody from another team. You know, even if you think it. It's not one of those things that you can just say. And they were sort of openly saying that. Um, and there had been uh, some you know, almost slight investigations or some, you know, I, I think conversations during that year of what was going on in New Orleans. So when the game actually happened, it was no surprise that they were hitting far late or low. Of course, they didn't have all the low hit rules back then. Right. Uh, and, and the late hit rules, like they didn't protect quarterbacks nearly what they do now. If they would have, called games like they do now back then uh 11 you know 10 11 years ago i bet you there would have been 10 personal foul penalties on the Saints. that's uh, wild on, on the defensive line linebackers on darren you know darren sharper would, would come in late and give Favre. he'd throw the ball but then he'd give him a shot near the head uh or, or whatever that you really didn't have to do it with maximum force you know i mean there's there's all these plays that now we go like man i can't believe they got away with that um, and a couple of them were flagged, but most of them were not. And, uh, but we were sort of expecting it. And, you know, there's nothing you can do. You can't like stop the game and go, Hey, hey right, this, right. this is ridiculous out here. You know, you're in the middle of a chaotic situation for three, three and a half hours in this chaotic dome, um, uh, with, you know, all this going into it. It just, it, it wasn't one of those places where you could sort of stop and think like it was week three, uh, of a, a, during a TV timeout of a regular season game. It was just, it, there was a different type of intensity there and communication was hard you know, all those types of things. But yeah, it, it was, we, but we knew going into the game, they were going to try to do this and, and they did do this. And, and of course we were incensed on the, the lack of flags for the most part throughout the game. Uh, and even though the rules were different, there still were may, maybe three, four or five plays that they still should have no matter, even, even with the, the rules different back then, they definitely should have called uh, you know, some sort of rough in the passer uh, or unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. I mean, Favre hand the ball off one time on a reverse, and someone came up and hit him in the face because he was, like, faking the bootleg out. Like, Jeez. you just can't really do that. You know what I mean? But that wasn't called, and that was right in front of the, the head referee in the back. Well, what's what's amazing to me is, you know, when you go back and watch the highlights of that game, the, the hits he took were astounding. But on top of that, he wasn't even sacked, not a single sack in the entire game. So every hit that he took was never with the ball in his hands. Yeah, it was always after the throw and, and he had he had a very quick release and, and he got the ball. Our, our line, you know, they'll, they'll be the first one to tell you they didn't do a very good job protecting him in that game. That is their, their job of, uh, you know, there was some miscommunication at times with the various fronts that we saw and, and how our line had to adjust and you, of course, you can't hear anything and and it was, you know, it, it wasn't a, a great scenario all around. But, um, yeah, he, he definitely, you know, took too many hits. And, and, and we, we really did dominate that game. I don't know if you remember this, but I think we had almost around 500 yards of offense in that game. I think they had around 250. I mean, we literally dominated that game time of possession. We had the ball more. Uh, but we turned the ball over, uh, I'm not sure how many times, uh, three, four times or something like that. You know, Adrian fumbled on the five, on like the three, four, five right. yard line. Um, you know, we, we had too many turnovers in that game uh, that, that really cost us. 
when uh, when I was reading your article, rereading it over the weekend to get ready for uh, for this podcast, the the part that jumped out to me is you know probably a part that jumped out to most people who read this when you wrote it a few years ago, which was you you know at the end of regulation after Favre had thrown that interception uh, to Tracy Porter, I believe it was, you had kind of gone up to him right before the coin toss for overtime, and and you said that you know you you told him he was the best player you've ever seen play football, and it was. Um, an amazing experience for you to watch him throughout the year and then he was still you know maybe a little bit I don't want to say out of it in terms of meaning like unconscious but just like he was so focused on the interception that he had thrown that he was just still a little you know um, he was still zoned in on that and and the last line is I can't really describe the look that he gave me after you told him you know what I just explained but I can tell that those words meant something to him and so and then there's a scene later where you talk to him the next day or the day after and he kind of thanks you for it but what what did you what were you feeling in that moment you know at the at the end of regulation and and why do you think it it did mean so much to him to hear somebody say that yeah so you know he throws that pick um they they intercepted they they run it back near midfield uh luckily our center john Sullivan makes this tackle game goes into overtime and Favre walks over you know he's just been beat up uh, probably like nothing I've ever seen in my career at that point, you know, nine or so years in the league. I, I've never seen somebody take that many hits and still out there playing. And he walks over, limps over to the sideline, uh, and we're sitting there uh, on the Gatorade cruise, you know, right at the 50-yard line, probably the phone's behind us or something. Uh, and we're sitting there, um, and, the you know, the, the, the coin toss occurs in overtime, so there goes out Steve Hutchinson and Ryan Longwell, uh, and whoever else our other captains were, maybe Chad Greenway or something, um, they, they walk out to midfield to do the coin toss with the Saints. Favre was also a captain. He's usually a part of that. He did not move. He did not, I don't think he had the energy. I don't think, he, you know, there's no reason for him to be out there, but his body was, was basically broken at that point. And um, no one said anything for a little while, and I didn't say anything, and, and at some point he said, man, I choked. And it, it hurt me for him to say that. And, you know, it's not like some, uh, you know, some people uh, took it as maybe a little bit controversial that I, that I told people that, or I, you know, took this sort of private thing that we had and put it out there, but you know, there's nothing wrong with, he did choke, you know, he threw an interception at the worst possible time. It happens to everybody. And then you play a long time. It happens more, uh, to, to those types of guys. And, right. and it's happened to Favre over the course of his career. It wasn't some secret to that, you know, that's actually what occurred. He acknowledged that to me, but it hurt me so bad. That's how he felt because I just knew how well he played that entire season. I had known how he played that game up until that point that we would not have been in that game. I don't think uh, without a lot of things that if he had played so well in that football game with taking all those hits. And it really like sure hurt my soul to see somebody that I uh, was so impressed by feeling so crappy at that moment. And um, I took a second after he said that, uh, and I, I, the word just sort of you know came to my mind. I said, Brett, you're the greatest football player I've ever seen, and uh, it's been a real pleasure working with you this year. And it was. It, it, he was the greatest football player that I saw, greatest quarterback that I saw. Uh, and it was such uh, like an honor. And here we are talking about it, you know, 10 years later, right? It was an honor to work with him that year, to be around uh, the way he played, to have that experience. Those are great memories for me. And, and that is a, a special moment for me. 
And I, and I think that people, you know, so many Green Bay Packer fans slash just Brett Favre fans, right? Which there's a lot of those who are almost more Favre fans than Packer fans. It's almost like Jordan, you know, they, they, they like the Bulls, but really Jordan's the guy, right? And uh, and I think, um, you know, he was sort of treated probably as almost a superhuman for so long because he had done sort of superhuman type things uh, uh, for so long. Uh, but he was a, he's a very real person with those very real, sometimes almost insecurities uh, of things of, you know, trying to live up to those expectations and, and sometimes you fail. Uh, but, you know, I always love that great Teddy Roosevelt, uh, you know, quote where it talks about the, the man in the ring. Uh, and, you know, they're the ones who are sort of putting it on the line and putting it out there. And it really shouldn't be our spot to look down upon and second guess and judge these people who are there, the ones who are actually putting it on the line and, and far put it, put it on the line uh, in all those games that year. It was it was quite the incredible season for me to be around. What's uh, what's one of your favorite Favre stories, you know, just about him as a person, not necessarily football stories that is uh, that I should add the caveat that is suitable to, to say on a broadcast? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, you do get those fun, um, you know, lunchtime stories in the cafeteria where he talks about his wilder days of, you know, when he was 24, 25 years old and, <laughs> and that group they had in Green Bay. And, and it seemed to be a pretty wild group. And so the, the, there's those stories, which I will never tell. Of course. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, he loved being on his, uh, being on his land at home. He loved, you know, be, having a tractor and clearing trees and, and, and doing things like that. Uh, you know, he, he loved to be around. I definitely know he loved to be around his daughters. And I, I think his second at the time, she was like 10. So she's probably like 20 now. Um, but I definitely know when I would see them also, like, you know, when she would come, uh, to practice or, or after a game, I would see that relationship and what we, what he had with her. Uh, and I thought that was really, really special. Um, so, I don't know. I, he was a very likable guy. He, you know, he was one of those people that liked to entertain, liked to tell the jokes and, um, you know, maybe be the center of attention a little bit, but uh, you know, football is a very intense sport and it's, it's good to sort of keep things a little bit lax and have a good, uh, a little bit of a good time with it and take that edge off. Uh, but the thing about Favre was, you know, from a, I guess uh, from all around, man, that I just, the way he competed in games, it was just different to me. The way that the, the lack of concern for failure, and that's hard to do. Everyone worries about screwing up or, or failing. Uh, when he was on the field, it's like he had none of that. But when he was off the field, of course, you know, you're worried about throwing a reception. You don't like this play because he's got a bad history with it. Uh, but, man, the way that guy played uh, was, was fearless, and, and that was, uh, you know, again, like nothing I've ever seen. With with being in the league for as long as you were, and we'll kind of you know end on this topic here, shifting gears a little bit. You know, I thought it was interesting talking to you at the combine about you know the fact that you're working with young quarterbacks now and and trying to teach them things and doing some quarterback coaching things of that nature. Um, you know, do you notice now, you know, years removed from the end of your career, that so many of like the little lessons or different tidbits that you picked up randomly from a guy seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve years ago that you never thought you'd use, all of a sudden they pop into your head and and, and do they help and frame the way that you're teaching some of the young kids that you're working with now? Yeah. So, you know, when you get done playing football, you, every, every player goes through and everyone has their own unique um, experience, but you, you go through this transition of like, what the heck do I do now? Of course, you know, do you have enough money? 
do you do you have to work? You know, all these things sort of play into it. You know, what type of person are you? Do you like to, do you want to work a nine to five or do you want to sort of set your own schedule? You know, all these various things. And what you do learn, especially when you're a, a journeyman quarterback, is that you've been around a lot. The, the best coaches in the world. You know, uh, there's I think the year after I, I retired. 13 of the 32 uh, play callers, whether it's, a, you know, Gary Kubiak, who's a head coach at the time, calling plays, or, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, a Brian Schottenheimer, who was you know, my quarterback's coach, but 13 play callers of the 32 I had played for at one point in my career. You know, I, I guess that sort of makes me an expert at one thing on this whole world is quarterbacks, or at least one of the experts at this thing. So, you know, one of those ways I, I use that knowledge that I had all those years is, of course, you know, doing things like this, talking on the radio, writing some articles, doing, you know, calling some, some TV games. That's my expertise. But the other thing is actually working with some of these young guys, you know, some of the top high school players in the country. Uh, I, I, we do some camps called the Quarterback Collective, which is really cool. We get, you know, Kyle Shanahan, and Sean McVay and Matt LaFleur and all these assistants to show up and, and, and work with the, the top high school quarterbacks in the country. Very cool experience. Also, I've got a chance to work with some of these guys who are either in college, who will be coming out for the draft in a couple of years, or guys that are actually coming out right now. I actually work with two guys, uh, Brian Lewerke from Michigan State and Anthony Gordon from Washington State, as they graduate from their bowl games. And now, you know, they had a week or two weeks to get ready for the senior bowl. Try to get them right. Try to bridge that gap from high school to the pros or college to the pros to me that I really love doing that. That is just for me, it's not always on the field stuff. Of course, there's, there's plenty on the field work. What people, people don't realize is what that jump is from, you know, football in, in the afternoons in college to all ball all the time. You know, you don't have class. You don't have this. You don't have that. You don't have restrictions. It's all so that the complexity of the game uh, is just a different level. So if these guys can can have that foundation before they even step into a senior bowl or step into the combine or these private workouts and meetings, I think that gives them a much better chance to be then successful at the NFL level. Uh, that you know the first time they hear about how coverages work or how blitzes work isn't from their quarterback's coach at their rookie mini camp, but they heard it actually years earlier uh, from somebody like me. So, right. It's another aspect of, I guess, trying to deliver some of the knowledge that uh, that accrued o- over all those years in college and pro football. But would you ever want to actually be on a staff somewhere and put in those 90-hour weeks? <laughs> well, it's something I, I've thought about a lot. I, I have an 18-year-old son. Uh, I have an eight, a 15-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old daughter. Now, I get to choose between driving my daughter to school, uh, picking her up from school, coaching her 10-year-old basketball team, driving to my 15-year-old daughter's soccer tournament in, say, St. Louis or something like that. Um, I have a choice between being able to do all those things that I feel very lucky and or blessed to, to do. Uh, you can't do a lot of those things if you're a college or right. pro coach. Um, and very luckily, I don't have to have that income. Uh, I was a pretty good saver when I was a, a pro quarterback. So I know I never made the 15 or 20 or even 10 million or even $5 million a year. Like even some of these backups are making, you know, the chase Daniel type money. I did not make that money, but I made enough. Uh, and I don't spend all that much. I'm not, a, I don't feel like I'm a materialistic person. So I'm in a spot where I get, to, uh, you know, I, I guess pick and choose. And, and I've chosen not to get into full on coaching. 
Uh, you know, maybe when my daughter, the youngest, my 10-year-old turns 18, and I go, you know what, I want to go all in on something. At that point, I feel like I'll sort of be free in life to, to do exactly what I want to do. Um, but right now, I, I, I always try to say to people, I lived my dream. At, you know, some people just want to be a, a great high school athlete. All right. That's a dream for a lot of young kids out there. I lived that dream. Some kids want to play college football or college sports. I lived that dream. I got to play in the NFL for 12 years. That is a dream of almost any kid across the country. My sort of dream right now is to maximize my time with my kids, be involved as much as I can to life, because I know I actually have this almost advantage on life that I get to do that, that I have the luxury to do that. And I'm going to take advantage of that and maybe try to fulfill another dream of, of coaching, because I do think about coaching. I, I, I love talking about the game. I love teaching the game. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's obviously the NFL is a very fun and lucrative world, but I think for me personally, those dreams can wait as, as, as I try to fulfill this other dream of, of, uh, of being a full-on father, and that's, to me, much more rewarding. That's fair. That's fair. I can understand that, and I can imagine it's a lot of fun, too, to not have to be up until 3 in the morning wondering how a certain safety is going to attack on a blitz and things like that. But, Sage, I really appreciate you taking some time to, to chat with me on the show. It was uh, much more time than I told you it was going to be, but that's just because you're a good storyteller and I was enjoying myself. So I apologize for that, but thanks, man. No problem. Thank you, and thanks for having me on. So there you have it, a conversation with 12-year NFL veteran Sage Rosenfels. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed recording it with Sage. We had an awesome time over the course of almost 90 minutes here, so for those of you that stuck around all the way till the end, one gold star, one pat on the back for you guys. Thank you very, very much. Be sure to follow Sage on Twitter, at SageRosenfels18. That's Sage Rosenfels and the number 18. Hopefully you guys will continue to tune in to future episodes of the podcast as we continue to grow our listenership and expand into the future. I won't take up any more of your time, but I will make one last little plea with you. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, please leave us a five-star rating, leave us a review, let us know what you might want to hear in the future, and I'll do my best to make that happen. So until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you guys have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon. Mm -hmm.